The Dancer PhD contest is a annual contest that's put on by Science Magazine every year. And I think, I think this year was the 13th one, but it's been going on for some time. And I have known about it for a while. And it's one of those things where every time I tell people I used to be a dancer or something, they're always like, oh, you should do the Dancer PhD contest. And that's just like been floating around in my brain all through grad school. And I have wanted to do it, uh, but I was waiting until I was like, I had a more complete story to dance about. And this year they added a COVID-19 category for anyone who was focusing their research on COVID-19. I uh, submitted a dance to the contest and I ended up winning the COVID-19 category. Hi there, welcome to our podcast, What Are You Going To Do With That?, of the Minerva Center for the Rule of Law Under Extreme Conditions at the University of Haifa. My name is Dani, and as your host and a PhD candidate, I chat with early career researchers, hoping to gain insights into their academic journeys and how to face my own. In this episode, I am talking with Heather Mason Forsythe, who is doing her PhD in Biochemistry and Biophysics at Oregon State University. She is also known as... Hey Curly Top on Twitter and TikTok. Heather uses dance challenges on these platforms to communicate her science, provide resources and advice about being a scientist. But before we go into COVID research, dance challenges and Heather's academic journey, let me tell you how to find us on social media. Our podcast has a Twitter, Facebook and Instagram account where you'll find more information about our guests and get to connect with peers. We also have a YouTube channel that is linked to our website and blog with tips and tricks for early career researchers. We'd love to hear what you think, so do like, comment and share. And while you're at it, don't forget to check out Heather, who uses the handle HeyCurlyTop on Twitter and TikTok to see her viral videos. No pun intended. Now, let me introduce you to her. Heather Mason Forsyth has a BSc in Biology from the University of Central Arkansas, and straight from there went to a PhD in biochemistry and biophysics at Oregon State University. After doing four instead of three lab rotations in her first year as a PhD, she eventually ended up focusing on COVID-related research. Heather has worked at HB and gained industry experience. She has a few publications on her name. She's presented at international conferences and has teaching experience. Most interesting, though, I find, is her work as a science communicator. Heather uses TikTok and Twitter to communicate science to a large audience through songs, memes and dances, about which she was even interviewed by Forbes. Her videos have reached tens of thousands to a million views, and she has over 47k followers. And you can follow her too with the tag HeyCurlyTop. So, Welcome to our podcast, Heather. I'm excited to have you here today and to learn more about SciComm. How are you doing? I'm doing well. Thanks for having me. Great. Let me pour myself my regular amaretto that I always bring with me. What is your poison today? I am drinking an almond milk latte. That sounds good. Is it a local one? It is. It's from a local French bakery here in Corvallis, Oregon, where I'm at. Okay, that sounds nice. It's good to have a few things open, at least for takeaway, right? Yeah. All right, so cheers. Cheers. <laughs> so while we sip our drinks, um, I'd like to start 
with a few short questions as usual. And the first one is, how does your day start? My day starts normally with reading a bunch of emails that I got either very early in the morning or late at night that I didn't see, uh, sometimes checking in on if I'm running an experiment that needed to start early or that ran overnight. Sometimes it starts like that. My mornings start maybe differently every morning, but uh, usually I try and, especially during COVID times, I try and get everything on my computer, like computer-type work done earlier in the morning, and then uh, I've been trying to be more efficient about the time I'm in the lab and going to lab just whenever I'm doing the actual lab work. So. so your day definitely starts with the first thought about the lab. Yes. <laughs> okay, well, fair enough. That's your life right now. Yes. My next question is, what is your favorite music to dance to? Oh, I have really come to enjoy K-pop songs, Okay. particularly since starting to use TikTok. I think that often those, uh, a lot of K-pop songs are the trending songs on TikTok that I wouldn't have sought out myself, but now I've started to enjoy a lot. Cool. So we also get to see that on your TikTok, right? Yes. Cool. How would you complete this sentence? I wish everyone could find something that makes them happy to do every day. Oh, and that's a good one. I like that. Would you say that about yourself? That that's what you are doing right now? I would say that I definitely try and do that. Some days I'm more successful than others, but I try to prioritize doing at least one thing that makes me happy in the day if it's a particularly busy or stressful day, especially. That sounds like great advice. Thanks. All right, let's dig into your academic journey then. And that was particularly short, probably, for you compared to others that I've been speaking to on this podcast, because you moved directly from a BA, a BSc, to a PhD. So I wanted to ask you, when did you realize so early on in an academic career, right, Mm -hmm. that a PhD was going to be your next step? And did you feel prepared enough to do that? Yeah, so I started off as a biology major in undergrad because I thought I wanted to go to medical school, which is pretty common, I think, for any, any like student who does well in school and sort of like science, people push you to go to medical school. And so I was... So I started off like that, and to get to medical school, it's pretty competitive in the United States, and you need a lot of experience in research and volunteer hours and numerous other things. So I started doing clinical research voluntarily really early at Arkansas Children's Hospital uh, the summer after my first year of undergrad, and I kept doing that on and off for the next three years, and I really enjoyed it. Uh, and then a little bit later in my my undergraduate career, I started doing research in a lab that was more microbiology, biochemistry geared or centered, and it was more uh, harder lab work as opposed to the clinical research I was doing, which was a lot more of consolidating data and uh, a lot more paperwork, uh, but I really started to work in a lab 
um, a little bit after that. And I just really started to like research and really enjoy that, that time in the lab. And um, I started to realize that being a medical doctor was a lot of things that maybe I didn't like as much, things like having to deal with like, I don't know, like insurance or like running a business or Mm -hmm. dealing with like really difficult people or in the U.S. in particular, we have a really bad healthcare system in general that's very inequitable. And I, it just seemed more and more unappealing and research seemed more, started to feel like the more magical, exciting part of science, I guess. And so... Um, I actually took the MCAT, which is the exam you have to take to go to medical school. And then, which, and it's really, really long and really hard and requires a lot of studying. Um, and after going through all of that, almost in my last year of undergrad, I was traveling alone in Europe. I was on like a backpacking trip. Nice. Yes. And spending a lot of time by yourself is really good for introspection and realizing what you want separate from all the pressures of other people that are around you, I think, and people telling you what you should or can do. And so while I was on that trip, I was just like sitting on a roof in Portugal watching the sunset. And I was like, actually, I am not going to go to medical school. That sounds awful. And I... Uh, came back from that trip uh, that summer and took the graduate uh, the graduate school exam instead, or in addition to the MCAT actually, and uh, started that application process. So I was really late to do it. Like lots of other people who plan to go to graduate school spend a lot more time, I think, on the apps and on the I don't know, they spend a lot of time knowing what they're aiming for. And I sort of at the last minute decided that that's what I needed to do instead, or at least what I wanted to try and do. And I didn't really think I was going to get in the first round because I didn't get to spend the amount of time that I felt like I should have spent on it. And so I thought, well, I'll try this time and see how it goes. And otherwise, I will take some time off, work in industry or something, and then reapply. But I ended up getting in that first year. Congratulations. Thank you. I, uh, I think it was just a because I had spent so long getting ready for medical school, I ended up getting a lot of research experience and having a lot of volunteer activities and a lot of writing experience. And I was, I felt pretty prepared to go. So I was happy about that. Sounds like you did a lot as an undergrad student. I did. Yeah, it might have taken some time to figure it out and and it clicked with you what you wanted to do or didn't want to do when you were watching that sunset in Portugal. Sounds very nice. Mm -hmm. Yeah. But what would you advise others who are in a similar situation, who are really in doubt when they're already almost done with their undergraduate, um, to take into account if they have to make a similar choice? Yeah, I would advise to slow down if you have the option. I didn't really have the option, I felt like, to take time and figure out what I wanted to do because I was really poor and I'm a 
from a like non-academic family. I didn't really have anyone except my professors to go to for advice, and I didn't have anything to fall back on uh, money-wise. So it was either I need to hurry up and get a job, or I need to take out huge amount of loans and go to medical school, or I need to go to graduate school, get into graduate school that's funded. And I didn't really get a chance to, I don't know. I, I did weigh my options, but I would have liked to have taken it a bit more slowly, I think. And I would advise doing that if you have that option. Um, maybe getting a master's first before jumping into a PhD or at least spending some time in industry, maybe doing research and then going back. But it it worked out okay for me, so maybe it's fine. It seems so, because you got into graduate school, and you're almost done now. But before we jump to the end, let's go to that first year. Um, because already in your first year as a PhD, things didn't really go as planned, I understand. You were originally supposed to rotate uh, between three labs out of all the labs available um, in order to decide really you know, what research you were going to do in the hope that that lab that you liked would also like you back and have yeah. uh, funding. As you said, you needed to be funded to get through graduate school to also support your work. So what was that first year like? What were your ups and downs? And how did you decide on the lab? Yeah, my first year was really hard in my program. We, uh, as you said, we rotate through a couple different labs and it's sort of like speed dating and you have to find a lab that is your fit and that they're willing to take you and have funding. But that process is often not very clear and the communication isn't always very clear and it's just a sort of weird stressful process on its own. And then in addition to that, we are teaching that first year because that's how we're funded whenever we're not in a lab yet. Right. And also we're taking classes. So I was trying to juggle all those things and trying to figure out what is the most important thing to focus on. And like, you have to maintain a certain GPA to stay in the program, but also you need to focus on research to be picked to go into a lab to stay in the program. And also you have to teach because that's what you get paid to do and the students are counting on you. So it's kind of a, it's a lot that first year. And I came to grad school with my biology degree and really thinking that I was going to focus on a more biology-centered research lab. I thought I would work with like animals or cells at least, like cell cultures. Um, but I got introduced to biophysics for the first time in that first year, and that's a part of my degree. And when I started the program, I just thought it would be a, you know, I have to take these classes and I'll do it and then move on. But I actually started to really love it. And the very last term of my first year, I took a biophysics course taught by my now PI. And when I was taking this class, I just immediately regretted not choosing to rotate in her lab. And I was like losing my mind a little bit. And I was like, man, this is actually really awesome. And the way the research flows was more my speed, I thought. So a lot of biology research is dependent on your cells or your animals. So it's a lot of like 
waiting for your cells or animal to grow up and then to die and then to like do all of these things. And so your schedule has to totally revolve around them. And the research in biophysics is a lot more like how fast can you grow up cells that have this protein and then the rest of it is just how fast can you purify it and start to run experiments. So it's a mm-hmm. lot more, it's a lot faster and more flexible, I think, the research and uh, more, it felt more concrete, even though it's definitely not actually easier mm-hmm. or like uh, more clear, but it felt so much more distinct, I guess. And it just appealed to you more at the time. Yes. So I uh, ended up not being able to join any of the labs that I, the first three labs I rotated in. Mm-hmm. And I was pretty much okay with that because I wasn't super excited about any of them. Um, it turned out, even though coming in, I thought I would be. And I asked my now PI if I could do a fourth rotation over the summer, which is a not common thing to do. And I did it, and my department was super nice about letting me be funded through the summer to let me do that. And I ended up being able to join that lab, and I have been there the rest of the time. Okay, so it turned out really well. Yes, it, it worked out for the best, even though that process was very stressful. But Yeah, because you did those three labs, just like the other students, and you didn't really like them, even though you thought maybe you would. And they also didn't have funding for you. So that must be pretty tough to go through in a first year as a PhD. Yes, it was a lot. And I wasn't really sure. I didn't really have a good backup plan. Like if it didn't, I never thought that I would go to grad school and it wouldn't work out. So, and we don't get paid very much as grad students in the U.S. So I I didn't have money to like even move back to Arkansas, really, if it didn't work out. And wasn't really sure what I was going to do, but it did work out. So what kept you really motivated to keep pushing through instead of just quitting after a first year? I knew I wasn't sure what job I wanted after a PhD, but I knew that I needed one for whatever job I did want. I knew I didn't want to... Uh, All of the jobs that I are the most appealing to me required a PhD, and I wanted that, I guess. So I I didn't want to be a lab tech, and I didn't want to try and change careers entirely. Um, I wanted to have creative freedom and to, like, be in charge of things and to be – to, like, get more power, I guess, and more – more influence. And I felt like I needed a PhD to do that. And I still think that's true that I did need that for, uh, as I'm finishing my PhD in the nearish future, I fingers crossed. Yeah. Fingers crossed. Um, I think that there's just a lot more doors that open and opportunities for me to have, and a lot more networking opportunities that I've made through my grad school experience that I never would have gotten Like maybe there's jobs that I would like that I didn't need a PhD for officially, but I would have had no way to make those connections anyway or without doing it. 
So I think that was a lot of it. So after the first year, you had a lab and a PI. So tell me a little bit about your research. So we, in the lab, we all sort of work on different, broader questions. So some people work on uh, motor proteins that carry things around inside of the cell. Some people in the lab have worked on uh, virus proteins or cancer-related proteins. But we all use the same methods or really similar methods um, based on uh, biophysical principles. So we can study proteins from basically any like question in biology and use them to answer questions, if that makes sense. So All right, yeah. <laughs> the methods I use are really applicable to lots of different things, and that's why I like it. So my first project that I got a publication out of was on a protein uh, that makes up – it was a, a crystalline protein that makes up part of your eye lens, and it's one of the proteins involved in forming cataracts. So – we use biophysical techniques to characterize that and the movements of those proteins to answer questions about how modifications to this protein might result in an in increased likelihood of cataract formation. Okay. So I can do that. But now, uh, later on, in a once COVID-19 became a thing, I switched my research to focus on a COVID-19 protein. And a lot of the methods that I learned for my cataracts project are transferable to this. So I was like, I know how to use this instrument. I just put a different protein inside of it to study it, this protein instead and how this protein moves. So uh, that's, that's sort of broadly what I do is use uh, biophysical techniques, especially nuclear magnetic resonance. It's a giant magnet, similar technology to an MRI scan. Uh, but we would look at proteins instead of a brain. And uh, we use other things like uh, light scattering properties of a protein, or um, sometimes we make proteins fluoresce to study binding interactions with other proteins, lots of things. Okay, so you made your research even more of a hot topic to... Uh, by adding COVID to it with the methods and the research that you started with before. So that's very interesting. I'm sure that got a lot of attention. And now that I know what your research is about, I also wanted to ask you how you got into that dance, your PhD and TikTok, right? How did you get into science communication that way? And what do you like about it? I started using TikTok because some of the undergraduates in my lab are, are on TikTok. It's a very Gen Z-centered app, mm -hmm. and I'm on the tail end of being a millennial, and I so a lot of my undergraduates who are working for me would fall under Gen Z, and a lot of them were on TikTok, and I saw them using it or talking about it, and so... I felt left out and also wanted to be in this, into it. And I, in particular, I used, I used to be a dancer in high school. And it's something that I have missed a lot since, like, focusing on academics instead, I guess. And 
I haven't been able to make a ton of time for dance through undergrad. And once I was in grad school, I started taking some dance classes for fun, but I haven't gotten to do it very much. And there's a lot of dance challenges on TikTok. So I, at first, started just, like, using it to, like, learn the dances, and it was fun. And so uh, me and one of my undergraduates at the time, Han, uh, we recorded one of we did it in the lab, one of the dances that was trending because it was just funny to do. And with it, the, the lab yes, with lab coats on. I've seen that one. And it got really popular pretty fast, and or at least way more popular than I ever thought it would, like tens of thousands of views. And after that, I felt like a light bulb went off. And I I was like, oh, this is actually a really good way to... Uh, potentially communicate science, but also just to show a humanizing element of being a scientist and Mm -hmm. to put scientists just like in the general culture, I guess. And so I started doing that more and more. And when COVID-19 started and I, I switched my research to focus on one of those proteins, the uh, specifically the nucleocapsid protein of SARS-CoV-2. And I announced on TikTok that I was going to, uh, I was going to start making TikToks about this process and like showing the techniques that I use to study this protein or to um, just like show general lab techniques in the lab and also just kind of like take people along on my journey. And I, probably had, I had like 20K followers probably at the time that I announced this. And when I announced it, I got another 20K, 20 plus K overnight, Uh basically. And they, my followers have been involved watching it and like learning about a lot of basic biochemistry and biophysical techniques through this lens of, because it's a COVID-19, suddenly people are open to learning about this stuff because it feels so impactful and so close to everyone's lives. Right. Uh, even though I use these techniques and a lot of scientists use these techniques for all kinds of different questions and uh, proteins, suddenly people actually wanted to learn about it, more about it. So I think that that's been super cool and a really good opportunity to expose people to science who otherwise wouldn't have cared. Exactly. It wasn't only a hot topic within academia anymore. It was now also a hot topic outside of that little bubble, right? Right. And uh, that was about TikTok, uh, but there was also, I think it was also a challenge, right? Dance your PhD. I never heard about that before. So would you care to elaborate a bit? Yes. The Dance Your PhD contest is, a annual contest that's put on by Science Magazine every year. And I think I think this year was the 13th one, but it's been oh, going wow. on for some time. And I have known about it for a while, and it's one of those things where every time I tell people I used to be a dancer or something, they're always like, oh, you should do the Dance Your PhD contest. And that's just, like, been floating around in my brain all through grad school. And I have wanted to do it, uh, but I was waiting until I was, like, I had a more complete story to dance about. 
And then this past year, normally they have um, a social science, a chemistry, biology, and uh, physics categories. And this year they added a COVID-19 category for anyone who was focusing their research on COVID-19. And I did do that. So I uh, submitted a dance to the contest. I recorded it with my wife over like Christmas break, basically. (laughs) And we did a bunch of editing um, as like a holiday project sort of and submitted it. And I ended up winning the COVID-19 category. And congratulations. That's great. Thank you. Yeah. I was super excited about it. Okay. So you won the award for dancer PhD. Where do you think we can find it? Uh, do you have it on your website or on TikTok? Where can we look for it? Um, the link, the actual video is on YouTube. Uh, so it's pretty easy to find now. If you just search dance, your PhD, uh, COVID-19 dance, probably it would come up, um, But it's also on my website under my videos tab. And I also uploaded it in smaller clips on TikTok uh, because TikTok is only up to one minute long videos. Although now Mm -hmm. they just gave me the ability to upload three minute long videos. So, but anyway, so it's on all those platforms. Cool. So we'll make sure that we'll add links to this episode so people will be able to find it. Mm-hmm. And uh, maybe check it out for themselves and also send a video in next year. You might have some competition then. Yeah, <laughs> I probably won't submit another one. <laughs> All right. Yeah. And now that you have so many followers and you discovered that you can reach a lot of people um, and be a science communicator through these things, these platforms, um, how do you see yourself on the one hand as someone in science, a scientist in the lab, and on the other hand, as a science communicator, do you see that as two separate things? Or do you think that any scientist should also be able to be a science communicator? And how do you profile yourself right now to the outer world thinking about, you know, a future career? I think that science communication is a learned skill, and it's something that you have to work at. But I think, I also think that on some level, every scientist is a science communicator, or at least should be trying to be, whether Mm -hmm. or not, you know, not everyone needs to make TikTok videos about all of their work. But I think that if you're a scientist, you have a responsibility to be able to communicate what you work on and the value of what you work on and the value of science in general to whoever it is in your life. So maybe you're a science communicator just to like your parents or your immediate friends who are in a different field. But however, whatever level that is, I think that that's really important to do and to be able to do. And I think that as a science community, we are starting to realize the value of that, especially after the past year of COVID-19 and so many people uh, resisting science and, acting Mm -hmm. like it's just, you know, made up magic or something. And uh, I think that we have seen the repercussions of what can happen if influential and powerful people don't have a basic understanding of science or at least don't have people that they trust to be able to communicate that to them. 
Right. Yeah, definitely. Uh, I think that the whole situation made a lot of researchers and scientists realize what role we could play and maybe should play uh, in the world and come out of our tower, the ivory tower a little bit uh, and, yeah. and explain what it is that we're doing and putting so much time and effort in. Um, so I think it's great that you're doing it this way. Of course, we were already doing it through conferences and I've been talking to a lot of people who also enjoy going to conferences abroad. You've also been at international conferences, but then you're talking to an academic audience. You're not talking to people from outside there. And that's exactly who we are reaching with these social media platforms. Um, so that's pretty cool, I think. Um, while we're talking about um, academia and things changing within it, maybe thanks to COVID in a way, uh, I also wanted to talk to, about other things happening in academia. As this month is Pride Month, uh, and having you as our guest, I'd like to ask you a more personal question, if you're comfortable with that. Mm -hmm. Great. What was your experience as an LGBTQI student and researcher I also wanted to know if you actually came out before or during your PhD and what have might been any worries that you had about that. I did come out during my PhD and that was sort of a maybe an important part of my PhD journey. I uh, sort of came to terms with my sexuality myself in my PhD and came out as well. I am fortunate to be in a city and a state that is pretty progressive in that in that way. So I'm not the only queer person in my department even. Um, and there's a lot of, well, maybe not a lot, but there's many uh, LGBTQ plus members around me. So I think it it wasn't easy, but it was not that wild for me to come out and I didn't do any like big announcement or anything. I just, you know, some, at some point I had a girlfriend and I, and she showed up to events and started coming to things and I got married during grad school and Yay. Um, yes. And my, <laughs> my department is like all friends with each other and, um, a pretty supportive environment. So there was like an announcement of my wedding whenever that happened, which was oh. uh, nice. Uh, many people are happy for me. And then there's people who clearly don't understand or are uncomfortable or, you know, whatever, but they're just not my close friends. So yes, definitely shouldn't be. And, and that was also another question I wanted to ask you. Um, Again, do you have any advice for others who are in a similar situation? But that's a bit of a silly question, is it? The better question is to ask, do you have any advice for the others <laughs> who are not in your situation, who are in the academic world on how to properly respond? Or what could we change in academia to create equality? Yeah, I, I think it's really hard in academia to come out often because we don't oftentimes we don't have a lot of choice in where we get to go and where we get to live mm -hmm. in academia. Often you just, you know, you go to the PhD program that accepts you and 
maybe that's in a really progressive place, but maybe it's not. And after your PhD, as an LGBTQ person, you know, if I was going to do a postdoc, then that's something that I have to take into account. Like, I am, you know, I'm from Arkansas. Like, I wouldn't move back to Arkansas, for example, and, like, take my French wife with me there. And I think that that's something we have to consider for our own selves. And uh, some people are happy, perfectly happy, I think, to just not have their personal lives at all be known. But and could be fine in a place that's not as accepting, but I, that's not a choice that I would make. So mm-hmm. I really want to prioritize, you know, my own safety and joy and community and sense of community in whatever uh, place and moves that I make. And I think that things that could change in academia are, uh, I'm not, I'm not even sure what in general, the culture could be a lot better often. I think that many places are still incredibly conservative and, um, about LGBTQ plus rights, but also, um, just the culture and being accepting and in using inclusive language and, uh, inclusive healthcare etc. But I think it's really variable between places. But I think a lot of conferences are starting to adjust the culture often to include things like pronouns and um, being, I don't know, just adjusting a lot of things. But it's hard. (laughs) It can be very hard. There's things that we just have to take into account often. And um, I personally am not really willing to stay in academia, for example, and move, just have to move to whatever small town there happens to be a job in, you know? Yeah, it's unfortunate um, that you have to keep all of those things in mind and that you can't go back to your hometown, for example, because it would be a struggle maybe in a way. Mm-hmm. Um, and I do hope very much that things are changing. Maybe it starts with conferences and move or sip in a way into academia. Let's hope so. But a lot still needs to happen. And uh, I'm very glad that we have something like Pride Month that is international, that I know here in the Netherlands, that I also know in Israel. I'm also participating in a, in a march this week. Um, so hopefully things are changing. I just hope they will change faster than it seems to be right now. Yeah. Thank you so much for sharing uh, that this personal information about yourself. Yeah. No problem. It's just saying that I think you're right that it is changing. And as, you know, I think that as more conservative and older academics retire and those positions are filled with, you know, uh, more progressive and more educated in this way, uh, people that it's changing and more representation is changing. And, um, I, I try to be open about my, well, I am very open about like my sexuality and my wife and, uh, on my TikTok, for example. And I, I can tell that it's still really needed and, mm-hmm. 
I think sometimes I forget being where I am and having a lot of acceptance around me that like I'm in a very, very privileged location in that way. And I get messages at least once a week, probably from one of my followers or someone who saw my TikToks and they're like so excited to see to see an LGBTQ plus scientist in particular, or like sometimes I make videos with my wife and people love that. And I've had like some younger, uh, like other people will like copy our videos or stitch them and send them to me. Um, And I just think that that's like super heartwarming and I'm happy to be comfortable and feel safe enough where I am to be out like that and to Mm -hmm. be a, source of hope or like evidence that it can be better if you can get yourself to that spot right that's great that's really great feedback to have uh, all this positive energy from fans and followers nice Um, then we actually already got to my last big question or maybe the most important one of this podcast which is what are you going to do with that You're soon, hopefully, fingers crossed, finishing your PhD. You mentioned you don't really want to stay in academia. So what's next? I am still not exactly sure what's next. I uh, immediately next, after I defend, I am, my wife is French and I haven't really gotten to meet her family. That's all in France because we got married during the pandemic. And um, I'm hoping we're going to travel a little bit and um, hoping that, assuming that COVID still is getting a lot better and decreasing in rates and uh, that vaccinations become more ex- uh, taken, I guess, and uh, hoping to go spend time with my French family and do some traveling and take a little bit of a break. I want to kind of take a step back and figure out exactly what it is I want to do. I have learned one of the most important things that I think I learned in grad school is what I don't want to do. And Mm -hmm. I learned, for example, that I, I really don't like teaching. For example, Um, I like science communication or informal teaching, but teaching a formal class to like biochem majors, I'm not into it. And your thing. Not my thing, and I don't want to be a PI and, you know, work really, really hard to write grants and get money for a university that, you know, when I could work not that hard and have a, like, enjoyable life in so many other ways in industry or um, I really would like to have a job, I think, that's more writing and more um, – more like management based, I guess, more uh, director like. So I'm not exactly sure what form that is. If I want to try and go into science policy more, or um, if I want to get involved in the startup biotech startup world. Mm-hmm. So there's a lot of things that I like. Is the problem, but right. we'll see. You still need to cut down some of that to figure out yep. what else you don't want to do to get to what you want to do. I'm going to, I want to take some time to like really think about what, what it is I want and what my priorities are in my next job step. 
So I think that it's only fair after doing a PhD. That's not easy, especially after such a long first tough year. Uh, and during a pandemic, which has been going on for over a year already, uh, to yeah. take a little bit of a step back and to think about what it is you want to do next. So, yeah, I get that. Let me wrap up with another few short questions then, of which the first one is, what do you consider to be your most important contribution to your field? Mm, I think... Not an easy one. <laughs> yeah. Um, I think that one of the most important things that I've been able to do, um, maybe not in my field necessarily, but definitely within my department and university, I think that I've been able to take part in a lot of positive cultural change and work with other grad students to do things like uh, you know, removing barriers that are um, that are biased and just favor like wealthy uh, wealthy students, well connected students. Um, I think that I have played a role in a lot of that, a lot of changes that have happened, and I'm proud of the work, the science communication work that I've done, and you know. I think that I have done good science while I'm in grad school, but I think that that's the easy part. And, you know, I feel like anyone with a science background could actually learn how to do all the techniques that I've done and how to ask scientific questions. Those are all in our purview and our scientific training, but being able to look at the culture that the science is taking place in and ways that it could be improved, I think takes courage, especially whenever you have no power. And um, it also is just much more difficult, I guess. Everyone is proud of you whenever you, you know, finish an experiment, but not everyone is proud of you whenever you call out something that is unequal and mm. uh, that's something that I am happy that I've been able to do sounds really great good job <laughs> and then who has impressed you most with what they have accomplished oh I think I'm actually really proud of my PI Elazar she is uh, the first woman department head of my department ever and nice. uh, she is the hardest working person I know. And, uh, you know, she definitely has a job that I would not ever choose myself to take on. But um, I just, she never stops and she does really good work. And I just have like an incredible amount of respect for her. And I am happy to like have gotten to work for such like a strong woman in science for the last several years. So I know it could have been way different than that. So Right. Cool. Sounds like a tough lady. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> and then the last question is, how do you relax after a hard day of work? Um, I go to yoga a lot. Okay. And I also go to a rock climbing gym 
now pretty often, and I make TikToks. Right, of course. <laughs> wow, Heather, you really truly have a very interesting academic journey, also a personal story. So thank you so much for sharing it with us today. Thank you. And I also want to thank our audience for listening. Don't forget to connect with us on social media. And also don't forget to check out Heather's Sitecom on Twitter and TikTok with the handle Hey Girly Talk. Great. So yeah, lots of TikTok videos. How many do you have already? Oh, I don't know. Too many to count? I probably have, <laughs> yeah, too many. I make several a week and I've been doing that since like 2019. So a lot. Do you have a favorite? Um, I have several favorites. I, I really like, um, I like all of the ones where I'm dancing in the lab a lot. Um, sometimes I use them to communicate science and other times it's sharing information that is hard to know if you're not in academia and um, I I think it's just so exciting anytime I'm able to see in the comments that like people learned something that they didn't know before. Sounds good. We'll check it out. We'll make sure that everyone will be able to reach you after this episode. Thank you.